0: I really owe a lot of appreciation to you who've taken your Wednesday hour here on a non-chapel a, on a day to give me time. I don't take for granted when uh, somebody comes to hear me, regardless of who or how many, because I know it's an investment. Thank you for being here. There's so many points of beginning on this that even as I was walking over here, I wasn't sure which were the appropriate points of beginning to talk about the winds of change that are happening in learning communities, to talk about what is happening in colleges and universities, online education, theological education, seminaries, and the list goes on and on. Uh, Needless to say, you won't be surprised when I say it's a tumultuous change, but uh, you might be surprised at the level of change that we are experiencing and will experience. I, I really am going to start with uh, uh, this particular starting point. And this particular starting point was uh, when I was a student at Southern Seminary. For you youngsters, you're going to guess at how long ago this was. I actually began in January of 1983. I had, I had come... <laughs> <laughs> And Bruce was the one who gave me a cat whistle even as I was walking here, which is a reflection of his femininity, uh, I, 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 I go back to those days because It allows me to frame theological education at least at that very moment. I'm going to put the theological issues aside even though they were the biggest issues. I was in a very liberal institution at Southern Seminary where almost all of the professors I had denied the virgin birth, a good number of them, the majority denied the resurrection of of Christ. Uh, may, many of them were more in the agnostic category than, two tr- than true Christians, but that's not the purpose of, of this uh, particular talk. My purpose is to talk about the delivery system and what was taking place then and then fast forward it to the present and then fast forward it to the future and to look at what was going on. The implications for us, Southeastern, the implications for learning. And the implications for the church, which I'll expound on even more fully in chapel tomorrow. I come from the banking world. I was a son of a son of a son of a son of a banker. I was a fifth generation banker. Art, my son, who's vice president here at Southeastern, was uh, a banker before he went into ministry. His brothers, were bankers before they went into ministry. And so all of these rainers, even though going different paths, had started in the business world, but then had made the leap into the call to vocational ministry. Such was my story when I entered Southern Seminary in January of 1983, taking a J-term course uh, in a Bible book in Jeremiah. Now here's what I found out immediately. Uh, My wife, Nellie Jo, is a godly submissive woman w- when I listen to her real carefully. And she had, indic- she had indicated to me that uh, she knew that I was called to vocational ministry, but she was also called to be a full-time mom. I- Totally respected that call, but I didn't realize the implications of it. She said, "If that is the case, we had then two young boys at the uh, at the house. Jess, our youngest, was not yet born. He would be born uh, 32 years ago today, uh, in in April of uh, April 26 of 1985." And she said, "You've got to earn all the keep. I'm gonna stay with the boys." The implications were profound for me, not because merely I had to earn a living, but it was how I had to earn a living. My first job was at Famous Recipe Fried Chicken. Uh, I had gone from being vice president of a bank to being the janitor in a fast food. When I asked if I could work the cash register at some point, my boss, the owner of the store, told me that I was not qualified at this point to operate a cash register, that I needed to continue cleaning closets and and cleaning the kitchen, and so I did. Ultimately, I was able to get a banking job, but therein was the rub. That banking job was the traditional work in an office back in 1983. I needed at least 40 hours of income, uh, work and income, in order to support my family. But here was the challenge. I went to the spring semester schedule. The J-term had worked out okay because I did not have a job at that moment. I'd end up getting a job. But I went to the spring semester schedule, and it was almost impossible, absolutely impossible for me to work a schedule around my work and to take a full load at seminary. I would later ask one of the professors, in fact, one of them who ended up working for me when I became a dean at Southern and working for Dr. Aiken as Provost at Southern, I would ask one of them, why did that happen, and they told me what they did. They passed a sheet around to all the professors, and each of the professors according to their seniority would fill in when and where they wanted to teach. It was a totally professor-centric institution with a bit of elitism where the senior professors chose when they wanted to teach. It did not matter what the students needed. It was what they wanted. Now, the rest of the story is very simply this. I, I was able to work out a situation where a very gracious boss of mine allowed me to work as much as I could during the day and then take work home. He was kind of radical in 1983 and helped them decide which loans to make, which corporate loans to make, and so I was able to work it out. But there was no way that I was able to work it out according to the seminary schedule. Now in today's environment that seems almost ludicrous that if, if, if we have a work problem, a schedule problem, a need problem, a family issue, then we do an online course, or we look at the schedule, and there's a proliferation of times that are available. That's point number one, not in terms of a, 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 of a lecture point, but just in terms of an illustrative point. Another one, let's get out of theological education for just a moment, my executive assistant uh, I have, I'll have. i explain this in just a moment. I have two, but I, it's a, it is a unique situation that is increasingly becoming less unique. Uh, my my uh, executive assistant has informed me that her job has changed so dramatically in what she does working with me, Amy Jordan, over the past five years, that what she did five years ago and what she's doing today have almost no points of comparison. There are some similarities, but she has shifted her work according to the direction that the world has gone, where we are seeing more and more of the assistant job, what was typically called the secretarial job, change dramatically, if not completely be eliminated. When I entered LifeWay 11 years ago, there were five assistants in the president's office. Today, there are one and a half. Amy Jordan who is the full-time resident assistant, and then Jana, who works for me as a virtual assistant. She actually lives in Atlanta. She's a member of First Baptist Woodstock, but she is as much a part of my team as is Jonathan, who is here, or Amy Jordan, or Amy Thompson. Virtual assistant, would have never thought about it. Every week, I have a Zoom conference with Jana uh, she does her work and she, we, we pay her for 20 hours of work a week. But the essence of it is we feel like we get 40 or more hours because they are uninterrupted focus hours where she is working out of her home or sometimes going on vacation or doing something according to her schedule while at the same time focusing on my needs vocationally. Situation number three Southern Seminary. Assistance. Situation number three, a meteorological discussion. I learned that about 100 years ago that people would go through, meteorologists and those who worked with them, would go through towns when a hurricane was impending. And one of the reasons they did that, because many in the town had never experienced a hurricane, and particularly if the hurricane was going over the, if the eye of the hurricane was going over the respective area, they would give them this warning. Number one, leave if you can. Most of the time they did not have the transportation means to, some did. Number two, stay in a safe and high place. And number three, because we expect the eye of the hurricane to be coming over this particular geographic area, here is what we want to tell you. When the storm hits, as ravaging as it may be, there likely will be a time when that eye passes over and there will be calm and blue skies and the temptation will be to get back in the streets and to resume life normally. Uh, the radius of the eye of a hurricane can be as much as 40 miles long, so it can be a period of time before the eye passes over. But you know the story. The hurricane is about to have its most vicious winds on the other side. And if you get relaxed during the comfort of the eye, you are possibly not only headed for severe damage to your property, but even death if you stay in a vulnerable spot. That, ladies and gentlemen, is the point where we are in learning communities today. That is what is taking place. We have seen the digital revolution evolve right before our very eyes. We've seen more and more (coughs) of our students go online. Whether we like it or not, that is the reality of what is taking place. We're now in kind of an eye. Not to suggest change is not still taking place in learning institutions, but it feels like we're adjusting a little bit. But the pattern has always been the same in disruptive change. The pattern is the most disruption is just about to hit. I do not say that as a doomsayer. I do not say that with pessimism. I say that as a statement of reality so that we can get ready for it. If you were in chapel yesterday, I mentioned that LifeWay is at that very point. We are at the very point where we saw brick and mortar retail go through a ravaging time. And then it was like we went through the eye of the hurricane and we waited for a little while, and now the other part of the hurricane is coming through. And as indicated in chapel yesterday, in the middle of 2016, over 50% of all households moved to Amazon Prime, a number that we did not project that would take place into 2022, we being the experts who are monitoring the digital world and the all thing Amazons often call the everything store. The implications behind that are not just limited to Amazon, as big of an organization as it is and will continue to be and grow, the implications are massive. I love Amazon from a convenience point of view. I've been one of the early adopters of Prime. I love the idea that everything is in, my, is in my profile and I can punch a button and have something guaranteed to me two days free because I'm a Prime member or one day if I want to pay a little extra for <coughs> rush items. That's the world that we live in right now. But in brick and mortar retail, we are now seeing the implications of such realities. We know two things perhaps three, we know, number one, that digital is replacing brick and mortar retail in many sectors. While brick and mortar retail will never go away, it will be incredibly reduced from its size today and continue from what it was even one and two years ago. We also know this, we know that what is taking place with Amazon and what is taking place with uh, retail brick and mortar is not only a change in buying behavior digitally versus analog, or actually being in the stores, we also know that expenditures are changing. The millennial generation, that generation born between 1980 and 2000, has chosen to spend its discretionary money in primarily two ways. Way number one, they will buy digitally. Way number two, they will eat out and go to restaurants. One of the things that many people are not watching very closely, but some of the more astute observers have seen, is that many of the discretionary dollars that would often be spent in a brick-and-mortar retail are not only being spent digitally, but they're shifting to restaurants as more and more of this generation is eating out. And restaurants are booming while brick-and-mortar retail continues to go down. As I indicated yesterday in chapel, I am not a pessimist about all of brick and mortar retail. I'm not a pessimist about Lifeway brick and mortar retail, but I know this, if we continue to do things the way that we've always done them, we will continue to get declining results. The reality of it is we have been changing, we will change, and we will change even more so as we move forward. Let's begin to look at the digital world for just a moment, and we'll tie it into learning communities. 1971, the first email was sent between two government mainframes. Now, the reality of it is, that was not that long ago if you're my age. If you're the age of some of you in here, it seems like a trip to antiquity, but it just seems like yesterday for me, two years before I graduated from high school, was when the first communication of email took place between two mainframe computers. It was that same year, didn't know this till recently, that Michael Hart launched Project Gutenberg, and his digitized version of the Declaration of Independence became the first digitized publication. Change is taking place. We see it in 1971. We see the seeds of change being sown, and we see the digital world coming to the forefront. But listen to this. It took 27 years shifting to 1998 before the first significant developments took place with ebooks. The first dedicated ebook readers were developed by a company called Rocket ebook and Softbook, names that you just don't hear about today. It was that same year that the first ISBN was issued to an ebook. It was that same year that a company that you've probably never heard of called Google was founded by Larry Page and Sergey Brin. In 2000, Stephen King becomes the first person to release a major publication only digitally. His novella, Writing the Bullet, was digitally released and remained digital only for a season. But keep in mind, Digitation started in 1971, let's move forward to 2002. 2002, HarperCollins and Random House began selling digitized versions of their publication, all the way from 71 to 2002. In 2004 and 2006, Sony released two readers, the most popular of which was the Sony Reader. But even then, digital books, e-books, were on a slow but steady growth trajectory and then it hit that paradigmatic moment much like 2016 for brick-and-mortar retail hit for the digitized publication world another small company by the name of Amazon release the Kindle and because Amazon understands consumers their algorithms know how to find us touch us prompt us to buy digital books began to take off. Barnes and Noble would follow again quickly with the Nook in 2009, but then there was another paradigmatic moment. Forgive all this history, but it's necessary for us to get the context of where we are and where we're going. In 2010, the second paradigmatic year, Apple, iPad, iBooks, and to some extent, Google eBook store. And it was also in that year that Amazon ebooks became greater in number than print books. 2010. If you were looking at the trajectory, and if you have a memory of seven years ago about what you might have been thinking during that time, you would have predicted that the digital ebook world was going to totally replace print books. If not totally, so dramatically so that the role of print books would be so diminished that they would be considered a novelty like a vinyl record. That may have been the prediction that you would have made. Probably would have been the prediction I had made. My memory is not good enough to remember yesterday, much less 2010, so I don't remember what I was thinking at that point. But had I made that projection, I would have been wrong from 2010 to 2016 ebook sales began to grow at a slower pace. If you're looking at a curve, the trajectory was this and it begins to flatten out a bit. So much so that by 20 spill a Coke on your drinks. I'm so sorry. I'm just going to rub this in. <laughs> so so much so, so so much so that by 2016, last year, ebook sales outside of self published ebooks, which uh, the average sale of a self published ebook on Amazon is somewhere between three and five copies. So you have to keep that in, in, in perspective. Yeah, Bruce, you're doing well with your 12. <laughs> so much so that now, there's a projection that ebooks are about to decline. Don't get caught up in the predictions, don't get caught up in my projections, don't get caught up in the statistics. One thing is what one thing that we do know is we don't know. And one thing we do know that change is going to happen, but another thing we do know is that just as we think that we can predict and project change, it takes a sudden turn and surprises us significantly. Where does that bring us? To learning communities. It is my desire not only for Southeastern Seminary, the place where my youngest son graduated, the place where my middle son is finding his vocational calling, the place where one of my dearest friends is president. But not only Southeastern Seminary, but all learning communities that are making a kingdom difference to hear a clarion call. It is not because I'm the smartest person in the room. It is not because I have knowledge that others do not have. It's not because I'm so prescient that I've been able to look forward and get everything right. But all the signs are pointing to the fact that we in the learning communities are in the eye of the hurricane. The greatest tumult the greatest change has already seemed to go before us. And we seem to be breathing a sigh of relief. Wow. We've survived digitization. We, res- we survived internet classes. But if the pattern of disruptive change that has taken place in other industries also takes place in learning communities, we are just too Three years, maybe at most, away from a major tumultuous shift again. As I mentioned in chapel yesterday, we have tried, Lifeway, to prepare for this in brick and mortar. We saw what happened as the fourth largest chain in America went out of business with Berean, and we acquired some of their stores. But I think two years ago when Family Christian Stores, and if you're not familiar with the story, for those of us who are in that world, it is a huge story. At one time, 350 retail stores across the United States, and when they closed, they had 240. And at the end of this month, most all of those stores will be shuttered and liquidated with only a few remaining with inventory before all of them are shuttered completely. We are now, in the brick-and-mortar world, in that other side of the eye wall. We're now in that time where if we had not been preparing for this, we would be sunk. And even though we have prepared for it, we still have tremendous challenges ahead. Allow me again to review the stages that happens when disruption takes place. Stage number one is innovation. That would be, in the digital print world, that would be when the first email was sent between two government mainframes. What follows that, secondly, is reluctant adoption. Sometimes called early adopters, but I won't even call them that. I will call them reluctant adopters, a stage before stage three, early adoption. I don't know about you when a new change comes out about where you find yourself. I find myself typically in stage three, rarely in stage two. I want to see how something works out before I become one of the first few. I don't want to be the first, but I want to be the first few. Innovation, stage one. Stage two, reluctant adoption. Stage three, early adoption. Stage four is gaining adoption, and that's what we have seen in learning communities, particularly in the internet world. We're seeing that gaining adoption. But now we are between stages four and five, gaining adoption and paradigmatic adoption. Paradigmatic simply is the adjective for paradigm, which means a new way of looking or doing things. And we're about to be in that paradigmatic adoption age, the stage where things are changing much more tumultuously than we would have ever anticipated. After that, will become a new reality. The new reality used to last for a long time, but now the new reality gets ready for more change, and it begins again. Some of you are old enough to have memories of America Online. You got mail. I used to carry a little email AOL device even before there were smartphones, just so I could get my emails on that little blue device. And think about how AOL, one of the most innovative companies in America at the time, Time Warner paid such a premium for them that today they look like one of the most foolish acquisitions ever. But think about how AOL was disrupted. The thing about it now is we never can get comfortable. We never can have the assurance that at least from a methodological delivery point of view, the disruption won't occur at any moment. I will share tomorrow some of the implications for those of you who are in the local church and what is taking place. The good news about the local church is that we know that there's many things that are unchanging. The challenging news, not necessarily the bad news, is there are many things that are really changing. And the local church, particularly in America in 2017 and forward, will continue to look significantly different than many would have ever imagined that she would. So let's talk a little bit more about the learning communities. Churches and seminaries are tending to follow parallel. Most churches, collectively, little c, not universal church, but most local congregations, most local congregations are in that large bucket between gaining adoption paradigmatic adoption i have a little community well it's not that little of a thousand plus church leaders called church answers we opened this community as a as a paid subscription community really relaunched it uh back about two and a half months ago we kept it open for about 10 days to enroll in church answers and we were just blown away that more than one thousand people joined in that 10-day period we shut it down So that we could assimilate all of those who had come into the community before we opened it again. Should not have been a surprise to us. Pastors and other church leaders had a lot of questions and they were looking for a place where they could get some semblance of an answer. But it wasn't merely questions. It was uneasiness. It was frustration. It was not knowing as a leader of an institution what steps to take next. Many times the seminaries get the blame because, oh, we didn't learn that at seminary, they should have taught me that at seminary. That's a fallacy. The reality of it is no institution can teach everybody everything they need to know before they go into the practice of that discipline. Seminaries, for certain, should be held accountable at some levels, but not to the blame that they are receiving today for the lack of understanding of how to lead our churches. I should have seen that what happened with Church Answers just two and a half months ago was one of those tipping points. Not necessarily Church Answers itself, but the manifestation of leaders wanting to come to a place where they can have community to ask questions and where subject matter experts can respond to them on a 24-7 basis. I should have seen that coming, but even I was surprised. Churches and seminaries are moving from stages four to stage five. It is going to be dramatic for some institutions. It will be traumatic. And, and, and you think from a learning community of Christian education or theological education, think about some of the beginnings of it. Perhaps one of the massive beginnings of a school you know too well, Liberty. And in 1983, they introduced the School of Lifelong Learning. My wife actually enrolled in that school in 1984 and started working on her counseling degree. And we would get this big box of VCR cassettes delivered to us. We could not afford a television with a, with a VCR player, so my mother was gracious enough to uh, get us an auxiliary VCR player and she would plug it in And she would go to class in the little seminary village, 600-square-foot gospel ghetto apartment, and she would listen back in 1983. What will churches look like? Well, I'm getting ahead of myself, but I want to share with you because the church and the seminaries are so intricately related. Churches, there will be consolidation. Closing and acquisition. Never thought I would see the day where acquisition was a key strategy to prevent churches from closing doors. I won't go into that now. We will see smaller worship gatherings. That is a trend that has continued to accelerate, or if you want to use the nomenclature more accurately, if the numbers are decelerating, where it would not be unusual to consider a large church, a church of a thousand or more. In the future, a large worship gathering is going to be 200 to 250, I said a large worship gathering. That does not mean individual churches will necessarily decline, it just means that there will be more services, more sites, more campuses. That is the reality of where we are. As I said, multi-venue and multi-site has now become normalized. It is no longer, in most churches, it is no longer something that is radical or unexpected it has hit the point of normalization. We will see more facility renovation instead of facility building. The most, one of the most common things that design build firms or building contractors are doing today in churches is reconfiguring worship centers to make them smaller and to use the space for other needs. We also see a growth of groups There was a Sunday school revolution that uh, the old Baptist Sunday school board, now Lifeway, had a major role in, but it became somewhat antiquated because the end, the means became the end. And it was about Sunday school instead of what was taking place within those groups. You'll see a revitalization of groups. We're already seeing that take place. There will be different ways that groups will manifest themselves in churches, they will continue to have different names, Sunday schools, small groups, community groups, life groups, dead groups, all those names that go with groups. (coughs) You'll see evangelism come back in vogue in many churches, unfortunately more by necessity than by conviction because we're seeing our numbers continue to decline because there is very little intentionality in evangelism. Regardless of your theological posture, all of us can affirm the Great Commission. All of us can affirm that we should be sharing the gospel. With others, that has diminished greatly in the American church. You'll see evangelism come back more by necessity than by desire. And there will be more choices for training. If you think they have a lot of choices for training now, just wait. what is just around the corner. I recently did an exercise, and I'm not going to hold myself to be fully accurate nor accountable that this number is precise, but I think it's close enough to make the point. (laughs) I went through a list of institutions that I perceived to be clear alternatives to our six seminaries. In other words, the type of person that would come to Southeastern may also be the type of person that goes to one of these alternative forms of learning. And I went through, and again, precision was not my goal, just simply to try to understand the reality of it, but here is what I think I found. Now that's a definitive statement if you ever heard one. Here is what I think I found. It apparently is demonstrating that the number of students, particularly at the graduate level, at the seminary level, not the undergraduate level, the number of students at the graduate level are as numerous in the alternative forms of learning as they are our six seminaries. Now, what I'm saying is not the total number. I'm talking about those students who, if they had accurate information, would would choose one of our six seminaries, have chosen another (laughs) institution or organization to get their ministry training. I would not be surprised if that number is as high as 15 to 20,000 students that could be in our six seminaries, but for a variety of reasons, most of which are obstacles that can be overcome, have chosen to go another path. It is not that they are choosing not to come, it is that they are choosing something that is put before them without considering other alternatives. That is one of the realities that I see beginning to accelerate, choices for learning institutions. Another thing is student centricity is growing. You remember my, my, uh, my, my example earlier uh, before I kicked the can and stained the carpet? I know that Lifeway will get a bill for that. Yes, yes I will. <laughs> you remember my example? I, I could not make the seminary schedule come close to working around my work schedule. If, if not for a gracious boss, a pagan, whom, another story, 25 years later, I'd have the opportunity to lead to Christ and do his funeral after he was led to Christ. I'm not posthumous <laughs> evangelism. If not for Frank Keener... I don't know how I would have worked my schedule. Student centricity is growing. Here's an example. I don't know if Dr. Aiken had come to Southern or still was at Southeastern at this point, but it was around the time Dr. Aiken came to be uh, vice president and provost at Southeastern. I was dean of the new Billy Graham School, and um, I had gotten permission uh, from Dr. Mueller and then Dr. Aiken to do some things outside the box. But at times I forgot that there was a box and I just started doing things regardless of where there was a box to go outside or not. But one of the things I did was I just did a survey, telephone survey. Had some of my students do a telephone survey <coughs> of pastors and staff. We didn't know if they had gone to seminary or not, but after about a hundred calls, it didn't take long, one thing we, we discovered is that a lot of those students would love to go to seminary if they could work it around their schedule. Now understand that this was in about 1995, 96. So get the perspective here. We did something that at the time seemed a bit radical and dramatic. We offered an MDiv program that you could get your MDiv in three and a half years on weekends and nights. That doesn't seem at all radical today. It was then. And a flood of students came to what we then called the weekend evening MDiv. We simply asked the question, what do you need in order to be trained in ministry? Now you could order that. You, you could argue that there should be sacrifice and that we should not cater always to the needs of students. But the reality of it is, that's the world in which we live. And if we are not student-centric, another institution is going to be, and as a result, they will go there instead of here. We will see more closing and consolidation of seminaries and theological institutions. I would not anticipate that any of them would be our six, but I would say that there's going to be a significant number of closings even as there has been. Some are barely hanging on even now as we talk. I think that we'll continue to see more church-centric curriculum and degrees. Here's a question that that I often ask in this context, but even beyond this context. If you were to start from scratch and have a blank slate. What type of training would you offer? Would it be the classic MDiv? Anywhere from 80-something hour degree to 96-hour degree, depending upon the institution and the particular focus. Would it be something different? And if so, what would it be like? What is the ideal training from a theological, biblical, Point of view as well as from a delivery point of view for students. There will be more partnerships. You will see seminaries enter into more strategic partnerships with people who, with organizations that are reaching people in different ways and bringing those two together. We will see more and more of those intentional partnerships. We'll see perhaps a rethinking of accreditation, many of the accreditation rules and guidelines are outdated, and if some of those don't change, then they will be changed, one or the other. Now some of those things were were just obvious things on the horizon, but let me share with you, and maybe my nomenclature is not the best, winner is what I'm going to use, W-I-N-N-E-R, Uh, I tend to have a competitive uh, streak in me, and so I like phrases that indicate that there are winners, and again, that is more of my irky personality than it is uh, maybe the best words to use. But I'm going to talk about what the winners are going to look like in theological education as we go into this next tumultuous time. First characteristic of a winner, that institution will be conservative and biblical. That is a statement of conviction, but it's also a statement of sociological reality. Students will continue to eschew, to avoid, the liberal and even moderate institutions. Those who are going to ministry will go to those seminaries and theological education institutions that are convictional and unashamed that they are convictional. That it will be one of the winners and will continue to be. Winner number two will be those who are innovative who are constantly asking the question, not how have we done it and can we improve it, but how can we do something totally, dramatically new? Another one will be that there will be more choices and connections, that idea of partnerships. The idea that more and more seminaries will understand that they have a role, but sometimes the role that has been assigned to them can best be carried out by other organizations. Those partnerships will continue. Winner number four will be those who are church-centric, who are asking the church continuously, partnering with the church, doing ministry with the church. They will be some of the winners. The other winner will be fast and nimble. When we talk about fast and nimble, any organization has to ask, what impedes us from being fast and nimble? When we began to see not only the, the warning signs of the Great Recession in 2007 headed up to the Great Recession in 2008, and then fast forward to some of these other disruptive issues that affected Lifeway, I went to our board and I requested them that we change some things so that we can be faster and more nimble. I wanted full accountability to my board, but at the same time I needed to be able to move not always with board action. And so we created a framework that allowed me, while being fully accountable for everything that was taking place, to make decisions quicker with more nimble-like behavior so that we could move quickly and not have to delay. One of those fast and nimble questions that we need to ask is, what is our structure? What is it? who has oversight structure that may be impeding us from moving quickly when we need to move. Another thing that we did is we looked at our entire organization, from the distribution workers in Lebanon, Tennessee, to our retail associates all scattered throughout the United States, through our those 1,100 of the 5,000 employees of LifeWay who are in the corporate headquarters. We looked at that and we said, what is impeding us in the way that we do work with them. We did a number of things. We made painful job changes. We made deletions where not only in positions but also in entire areas that we felt were not core to our mission nor could they sustain itself forever. We had to do that. LifeWay is a ministry funded by a business model. We've never received outside funds. We're not a CP recipient, we give to the SBC. And so if we make our way, if we survive, if we are meant to survive, it means that we have to pay our own way. And we had to make some of those changes and we still are today. We looked at our physical structure. We realized that we had 1.3 million square feet of usable space in the central business district of downtown Nashville. We owned 10 city blocks. We were the largest landowner other than the government in one of the highest growth cities in the United States. It was ludicrous. We didn't need 1.3 million square feet. We had already moved all of our distribution centers to Lebanon, Tennessee. You don't have a distribution center and trucks coming in and out in downtown Nashville. That had eliminated about 400,000 square feet that we needed. There were other things that were taking place so we made a decision, we'd sell. We'd sell our entire facility, we would sell everything that we had and relocate to a facility that would not have the overhead burden that could help us. Not that a new building is the answer, but it can often be an issue to help you move forward. Those are some of the things that we did that made us faster and more nimble. Have we arrived? No, we've got a long, long way to go. But I was incredibly encouraged uh, to hear that Forbes Magazine will be announcing on May the 7th that LifeWay is one of the outstanding corporations in America. Now I I, I don't know the history of this, but I don't think they've ever named a Christian organization that. Now they're gauging us by our past and our present. That is not a ticket to the future. We always have to be changing. We always have to be nimble. Winner number six, I've said this repeatedly, strategic partnerships. What can you do that someone else can do for you and you enter into that partnership to do so even better? I'm living the reality of stage five at Lifeway right now. I pray that we will make it to stage six where we will see some type of realization of all these changes, so that we can get ready to make changes again. Where will seminaries go? Maybe, maybe uh, when when when, I, when you give a lecture about this, it it it, it, se- it can seem awfully theoretically research based, data boring. But you know, where will seminaries go? I would suggest that any organization, but. I'm speaking specifically to higher learning at uh, the graduate theological level. I would suggest that uh, seminaries start putting their toe in the water into certain areas. And if you see that there's a receptivity to it, move in that direction, allocate resources. That has been the way that we have done disruptive innovation at Lifeway. We have not made wholesale changes. We've made what we call bullet tests. In other words, a small test with a small investment, and if the change seems to be something that perhaps God would have us continue to do, then we invest the resources in that. I see more and more seminaries doing these bullet tests. I see more and more seminaries learning ways to be nimble. I see more and more seminaries, not just merely saying the digital world has made us change, but the world has changed, and how do we respond to it? We've had about 300 years of... uh, relative stability in higher education, and that's about over. You're living in a tumultuous time, ladies and gentlemen. It's not bad news, because as I indicated in chapel yesterday, the God who is on His throne is unchanging. He is looking at all of this, and He's got the past, present, and future in His hand. He's the God (laughs) who is above time, and He is above our circumstances. Our role, your role, is to find out where we need to go next, and to do so with courage, to do so without any sense that we do not have the resources that God would provide us, but to move forward with the sense that He will be with us wherever we go.